The legends are true. But overwhelming power! The sauce of destiny. Yes! The most legendary sauce has arrived as McDonald's transforms into the anime world of Wickdonald's. The greatest flavors unite in all new savory chili McDonald's sauce to make your 10-piece Nuggets, fries, and Sprite ultra-powerful. Unlock manga comics with every meal and sit down for a new anime short every week only at Wickdonald's. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba, go! And participate in McDonald's for a limited time while supplies last. Welcome to the Three Down Nation podcast. I'm Justin Dunk, joined by John Hodge and J.C. Abbott. Today, we're discussing the controversial hit laid by Simone Lawrence on Cody Fajardo. The Edmonton Elks disastrous week one performance. Zach Caleros getting pulled by the concussion spotter in week one. And TV ratings for the opening week of the CFL season on TSN. But first... Canadian quarterback Nathan Rourke had the best performance of any quarterback in the CFL this past week, completing 89.7% of his passes for 282 yards and three touchdowns, and also rushing seven times for 78 yards and two touchdowns. His completion percentage set a new single game record among Canadian quarterbacks, and his five total touchdowns tied Russ Jackson's record among Canadian QBs that was set in 1966. Boys, I don't think I'm going to have anything to add this segment because I know you guys are going to run with it. What did you two make of Rourke's performance? JC, we'll start with you since you were in the building at BC Place in Vancouver. It was simply superb, Hodge, from start to finish. I don't know if I've ever seen a quarterback, a young quarterback, come into an, a game early in his CFL career like that and look shot for shot almost identical to what he looked like in college dominating in the Mid-American Conference like Nathan Rourke did at Ohio University. He did it all. The quick passing attack was so efficient. He knew where to go with the ball every time. He wasn't rushed. He went through his reads. And when he took off, he was absolutely electric. I, You could have better numbers than what he put up. You, know, you could throw for 400 yards. I don't know if you could have a better overall performance than what he put on the field against Edmonton. He was simply unstoppable. What stood out most to me is he did it against Chris Jones and his vaunted defense. The guru supposedly got lit up for a 50-burger, and I had text messages coming in my phone from people all around the league saying, hey, this looks good on Jones. And we know Jones. <laughs> it is a divisive figure out there. Some people love him. Not a lot of people hate him in the league. I'm sort of down the middle, especially on here. We need to provide some balance. But usually what Jones does to these young quarterbacks is he confuses them. He's good at disguising what's coming from his defense down in and down out. But Rourke was not confused at all. As you alluded to, JC, was very calm in the pocket. 26 of 29 is impressive in any game, let alone the first game of a season. So it's clear to me that he's put the work in with Lucky Whitehead, Brian Burnham, and the rest of the offense. And James Butler, we should give him some light as well. He had a great game, and it looked like Rourke, Seemed like he was in midseason form. Now, Rick Hamill had talked about that Rourke literally had been sleeping in the facility some nights in the offseason. And that's not just lip service. Like, Hamill's not a guy that is much about hyperbole and cliches. You know, I think it's reality. Rourke lives out there. His family moved out there. He was born in Victoria. So they're used to being in BC, spent the whole offseason there. And that clearly showed. 
The key part now is going to be they do have the bye week, but can Rourke continue this level against the other team? Because he's 2-0 and as a starter against Edmonton. doesn't matter if it's Chris Jones or the old coach there, Jamie Elizondo, that was coaching the team. He's got to do it against the other franchises in the league, and he's got to continue to do it as they get game film on Rourke. But the most intriguing part to me of his performance was how good he was from the pocket and the fact that he didn't run scared. He used it as a last resort and a weapon. It's clear to me that at least for one game, the offensive line gave him lots of time and he was comfortable winning from the pocket, which he is going to need to do. It's great to have that athletic ability, but sometimes young quarterbacks rely on it too much. And I think Rourke used that balance nicely in week one, and the key for him will be going forward. Can he do that against the rest of the CFL? Last week on the show, we talked about Nathan Rourke, and I said if they ask him to be Michael Riley in that, you know, stand in the pocket, take a massive hit, you know, count your steamboats and chuck it up at the last possible minute to Brian Burnham, this is going to get ugly, right? They needed to game plan appropriately, scheme appropriately for him. And so I want to give Rourke credit, just like you guys did, for an outstanding performance. But the person I think who might have been the most valuable in the building for BC on that Saturday night was Jordan Maximic, the offensive coordinator. He had that offensive game plan scheme to the nines. The ball was getting out super fast, a ton of RPO that made life really easy for the offensive line, which all of a sudden, after looking like a disaster in front of Michael <laughs> Riley for two years, looked like a competent professional offensive line. The ground game was cooking. Nathan work made plays with his arm and his legs Jordan Maximic would have gotten my game ball had I been there in the locker room at BC Place. You're absolutely right with that point, Hodge. It was a brilliantly schemed game. They made sure that Edmonton's defense was always wrong. No matter what they did, they were always wrong based on that scheme. Now, if there's a knock on Nathan Rourke's game overall and in that particular contest, it's like he didn't throw down the field very much, right? His average depth of target, I think, was about five yards. That's not very deep by pro football standards. It's not very deep by CFL standards. We really haven't seen him uncork and hit the deep ball like Michael Riley was so famous for doing in BC. Can he do that? I think he can. But this style of game, this quick passing attack, where it's all based on scheme and making the defense wrong is what he's best suited for. He's a rhythm quarterback. It's what he did in college, and he's absolutely exceptional at it. You don't need to necessarily be chucking the ball 50, 60 yards down the field. Even if you're attacking that deep part of the field, and you say, I know you know this well, quarterbacks, you need to be in rhythm, and the ball probably shouldn't travel too far over 20 yards. I mean, occasionally, yeah, you're going to let it go if it's a one-on-one situation in a go ball or a go route, whatever you want to call it out there. But to me, that's why this offensive game plan was so great. And guys, I remember on the pod going into the season, we were talking about Rick Campbell and Neil McAvoy, the co-general managers there, and how they didn't necessarily upgrade the offensive line. Well, probably telling us to shut up right about now because <laughs> made them look pretty good in week one there. And let's see if Rourke can keep it going. That's the real key here. We've seen flashes in the past from guys, but to me, as much as, and you know, I'm kind of biased in a sense, I guess, as a former Canadian University quarterback, we're hyped up to see a Canadian quarterback. We need to start talking about Canadian quarterbacks, and in this case, Rourke, as pure quarterbacks. Because if this guy was an American, 
I don't think there would have been many questions around him based on the game that he had to end the last regular season. So let's just start to treat him as a quarterback. Now, we want to see more Canadian quarterbacks, obviously, and Michael O'Connor played in that game, and Trey Ford did as well. So we want to see that continue. But I think we should just start talking about them as quarterbacks. And guys, for my money, along that same line, he was the best quarterback on a pro CFL field, bar none, in week one. Cody Fajardo played really well, but it was Rourke that I would have had a top of QB rankings. Mm-hmm. Well, before we heap praise on that that offensive line, let's wait until they play a competent defensive line first. <laughs> Cody Fajardo, the Saskatchewan Rough Riders quarterback, took a nasty hit from Simone Lawrence this past week causing what Fajardo called a little bit of an injury. He clarified saying that it was his head was not the issue and the injury came as a result of being folded up on the play. The league has since indicated to TSN that the injury spotter should have removed Fajardo from the game after the hit, saying the criteria is a blow to the head along with signs of distress. What did you guys make of the hit? To me, I didn't see signs of distress in terms of a potential concussion. Obviously not a doctor, and I don't want to be in that concussion spotter position either. But Fajardo described it, I felt like, very honestly after the game. He said he didn't grab for his head right away. He was dealing with another issue that he didn't want to talk about, so teams can't target that in the future. And he didn't get up woozy or wobbly or anything like that we've seen way worse shots to the head in the past and the concussion spotter wasn't always in place then of guys getting back up and going back to that and it's just fine so i think if you want to err on the side of caution yeah you could have pulled fajardo out of the game but there was nothing there from my blind eye not being on the sidelines and in the training room specifically with fajardo to make me think that he should have been pulled from the game yeah, like Dunk, I'm not a doctor, and I don't even play one on TV. But I agree <laughs> that I didn't think that that Fajardo necessarily needed to be pulled. I wouldn't have been offended had it happened, because obviously the safety of players is paramount. Um, but, as, I mean, as for the hit itself, I'll say this. You know, football is played at 100 miles an hour, right? And, and the way in which Fajardo came down, he was already engaged with a tackler and he kind of got spun around. And that's when the hit came in from Lawrence. Was it a violent hit? Yes. Was it a vicious hit? A vicious hit? Absolutely. But that's also what Simone Lawrence gets paid to do and has done it at an all-star level for a long time. Do I think the hit should have been penalized? Yes, because there was some contact to the head. But personally, I don't think that this is suspension worthy. I only think that's in the conversation right now because it is Simone Lawrence, right? And he has a reputation now. You know, you go back to 2019, the Zach Kalaras hit at the start of the 2019 regular season on that same very field in Regina. He has now a reputation for taking shots at players, for taking nasty hits, for doing things that some players consider to be dirty. So as for the hit itself, to me, it's a football play. But I do understand the people calling for Simone Lawrence because this is a pattern of behavior that we've seen from him as much as I think the hit wasn't nearly the worst that I've seen him deliver in my many years watching this league. I think you're absolutely right on that, Hodge. For me, if Cody Fajardo wasn't a quarterback and this exact same hit was laid, we're not having this conversation because he's an active runner in that situation. He's outside the pocket. 
and he's battling for extra yards. He's spinning out of that first contact. Now, I don't think he was going to escape. I think he was going to ultimately be downed by that first tackler. But Simone Lawrence can't make decisions based on that. He sees a guy spinning out of contact. He sees a dangerous runner in Cody Fajardo who could break a touchdown. He has to come in with contact, and he did so. I don't think it was egregiously high. It, it got high based on the fact that Fajardo was stumbling and falling down. If this is any other player other than a quarterback, we're not having this intense conversation about whether this was a dirty hit or not. This play happens dozens of times a game on running backs and receivers. Now, I do also think it should have been penalized. To me, Simone Lawrence plays on the edge. I respect that. It's what makes him great. And if you play on the edge, sometimes by accident, you're going to step over and you have to accept the fact that that's going to be penalized, right? If you're going to be an enforcer, you cannot be angry when you take penalties for being an enforcer. That's part of the role. And I think he's he treads on that line. He's treaded on it throughout his, his whole career. Sometimes he's stepped over. In this case, I don't think he did. Um, if this is any other player other than a quarterback, we're not having this conversation. It's a great point, JC. And you kind of alluded to it that these type of hits and plays happen in a split second, like, so fast. And for Simone Lawrence to make that judgment call, as you said, as to whether Fajardo is going to go down or not, a defensive player, these guys are trained to take people to the turf. And Fajardo, as you mentioned, was spinning out of it, was not down on the turf yet. Do I think it should have been penalized? Yes. Was it a vicious looking hit? Yes. But we don't know Lawrence's intent in this case. So I think that's a lot of things or one of the things a lot of the times people jump to is, well, he's such a vicious player and he was looking to take his head off and all the rest and assume his intent, but he's a defensive player coming towards a ball carrier who is not yet down on the turf. And it literally happens that fast. So to have to be able to try to pull up when you see him kind of getting crumpled up is not something that you're taught. And you don't know for a fact that he's going to go down to the ground. What if Fajardo somehow miraculously, and we've seen these plays happen in the CFL, spins out of that, stays on his feet and scores a touchdown. We're all talking about how Lawrence should have finished him off. So it's a very difficult line to walk. I still think it's the right move to penalize Lawrence because you want to show, look it. It is a quarterback. It's a superstar of the league. Love it or hate it, it's different when they have the football in their hands and you can't be going for the head. But outside of that, he's probably mainly going to get supplemental discipline based on his past. Yeah, the only thing I'll say is I'll, I'll echo JC's statement, right? If this was not Lawrence on Fajardo, I don't think anybody would remember this hit or be talking about it. If it was Jovan Santos Knox on Jamal Morrow, right? Similar players on, on the same teams, this wouldn't be an issue. But because it is the big names and the history involved, we're talking about it. I think it's time to move on. And we'll keep moving too. The Edmonton Elks got blasted in Vancouver this past week, allowing 59 points, 469 yards, four sacks, and turned the ball over four times. Yikes! We're only one week into the new Chris Jones era in Edmonton, but is it time to hit that panic button in the Alberta capital? I felt like at least at least after watching the preseason game at IG Field when Edmonton brought a lot of ones and twos in to play what was mostly Winnipeg's starting defense, 
and looked good, right? Edmonton came into IG and won. I get it, it's a preseason game, but the way that they did it with with going up again against a lot of Winnipeg's number ones impressed me. Not so much that I picked them to make the playoffs, but I expected them to be competitive, right? Chris Jones, I think, only went five and thirteen in his first season with Saskatchewan, but that team again was competitive. We did not see a competitive team on the field in Vancouver week one. We saw a team that showed up looking unprepared, looking frazzled, and things went from bad to worse in a hurry. Now, it should be said that Nafis Lyon and um, uh, Aaron Grimes were both out with injury in the secondary. They're banged up. They had 12 players on their one-game injured list. But even so, there's no excuse for looking that haggard and that unprepared at this level of football. And so for that reason, I am at least close to pressing the panic button at Edmondson. I'll give them one more shot. They host the Riders this week. I'm not saying they have to win, but if they can keep that game close and be competitive, I'll say no. But one more game like that, and boys, it's time to press that button. You guys are both going to harp on Edmonton here, but but for me as a high school coach, I thought particularly it was touching that Chris Jones took those kids he abandoned midseason at that South Pittsburgh <laughs> high school and dressed them for his first head coaching game. I, you know, I brought a tear to my eye. It really did. I, I thought that was such a touching, uh, touching thing he did. No, but it, it was <laughs> particularly on defense, which is supposed to be Chris Jones's bread and butter. It was an embarrassing display. And, you know, we hyped up Nathan Rourke off the top of this show, but how much of that was how poorly the Edmonton defense played against him. Um, I think this is something that comes with what Chris Jones is known for. He's a mad scientist. If you look at the guys he scouts and brings in in the offseason, very rarely is it going to be the top-notch, you know, all-conference guy from a big college. He doesn't go over after those guys. He finds unique athletes, guys that he can maximize their skill set and their athleticism. He looks for diamonds in the rough. And more often than not, he finds them. He finds tremendous players, and he's able to develop them into CFL stars. But what happened this week is he had a number of veterans injured. He had to play a lot more of those guys in their first CFL action than he was probably hoping for. And the reality is most of them are not ready because they are supposed to be diamonds in the rough that have to learn. I mean, they started a defensive end that played tight end in college. So that's the level we're dealing with here. Probably not going to get a lot of pass rush from him in his first CFL game. Now down the line, he can become AC Leonard and have, you know, 11 sack seasons, but in week one, he's still learning that position or getting readjusted to playing defense. That's not a recipe for success. So I think there's going to be some serious early season struggles here for Edmonton as they get these guys acclimatized to their new positions, their new roles towards the end of the season. We'll have to check back in and see how this Edmonton franchise is progressing, whether Chris Jones has found the athletes that he thinks he has and whether they are looking forward to a year two uh, bump. JC, that high school line is an all-timer, dude. That was epic. That's why you come to the podcast, baby, because we give it to you, the real goods. But you know what stood out to me the most was Chris Jones on the sideline 
just almost as if, and I don't want to say he got an expectation that they were going to get beat as bad as they did and give up 59 points, but he wasn't mad. Usually we've seen Jones, especially in Saskatchewan, upset on the sidelines, right? Yelling at his dudes. And it was as almost as he saw this coming because, as you alluded to, JC, with the young roster that he was fielding. Now, he might get some of those more veteran players back, and hopefully it's quickly against Saskatchewan or as the weeks go on. But it wasn't like he was yelling and screaming like we've seen him in the past when there's expectation. It was, it was almost as if there was not very much expectation with that defense that was going out there. And there was a lot of people around the league that liked to see Chris Jones take it, beating again, love him or not, and just sit back and completely enjoyed it. And the fact that it was a Canadian quarterback doing it too warmed my heart. So all around, <laughs> Jones was just taking it from a bunch of angles. I got a number of texts at halftime saying, I'm glad I'm not in that locker room. That, of course, be when the club was down, or not down by 42, but had given up 42 points in the first half. I don't know if Jones laid into his team or Al Hart, but a lot of people I was getting messages from were saying that exact thing. I'm glad I'm not in that locker room right now. The one thing, and we'll get to the next topic in a second, that I hope doesn't happen here is that Trey Ford doesn't get in the situation where it's a losing team and maybe forced into action too early. Based on just my own personal analysis, I need to do some digging on it. It looked like Ford coming into the game was pre-planned. Now, some people talked about Nick Arbuckle being pulled and then put back in, but Ford had a couple series in there. I think that was planned. We need to do some more digging on that, but I would like to see Ford be on the sidelines. And yeah, you give him a little bit of a taste. Don't stick him in there, especially if this team is just not going to be competitive. As much as I want to see that dude on the field, he needs some development. Those were the other takeaways that I was getting from people around the league who watched the coaches tape. They feel like Ford has a great upside, lots of athleticism, but he needs time to develop, especially coming from U sports jumping to the pro level. And I don't want to see him be thrown into a situation. I mean, it's probably unfair to Nick Arbuckle too, but he's a more veteran guy and can take a beating and clearly did. But you don't want to see Ford have to go through that. All right. Unlike Cody Fajardo, the CFL's concussion spotter did pull Zach Caleros from Winnipeg's season opener. Did you guys think that that was the correct decision? Absolutely. I was at IG Field for the game. And my interpretation, this is just what I personally thought I saw on the field. This was on real time and it wasn't on film, so I can't go back and review it. But what I believe I saw was Zach Kolaris on second and 10, diving headfirst for a first down, taking a shot, which I don't think was inappropriate because again, he dove headfirst. This was not a quarterback giving themselves up on a slide. This was a vet fighting for a first down. He laid motionless on the field momentarily and his teammates kind of seemed to clump around him almost in a, and this is me speculating, but almost in a way to, to deliberately obscure, obscure, pardon me, obscure the, the shot of the quarterback or the vantage point for cameras or fans to protect Kolaris. And after a few moments, the quarterback got up slowly, collected himself, and I thought, this is not good. Again, I'm not, I don't even play a doctor on TV, but that's my personal speculation and take on what occurred. So absolutely, it was a correct decision for the spotter to take Kolaris out. And I would say that even if he didn't have a history of head injuries, because we need to protect players and teams from themselves in key moments when the game is on the line. 
And what happened? Drew Brown came in with the game on the line, slung it for the three plays that Kolaris had to sit out and did so effectively that Winnipeg was in field goal range by the time Kolaris was eligible to come back and they just let him sit out the game. Kolaris did tell the media in Winnipeg on Tuesday that he could have come back for those plays. They just decided, let's let Brown finish this game because he played so well on those three plays being thrown into the fire. So to me, I give thumbs up all the way around. Thumbs up to the concussion spotter and thumbs up to Drew Brown for making the most of what must have been an unbelievable pressure-filled situation. I'm extremely happy that Kolaros doesn't seem to have a concussion that he's going to play next week. I think every CFL fan watching that play live, whether in the stadium or on TV, the second it happened, your heart dropped into the pit of your stomach because we've all seen that with Zach Kolaros before. We all know how good a player he is and seeing that situation happen yet again, we all feared the worst. With a starting quarterback getting pulled with the game on the line, you would think there would be a lot of fans up in arms, not even just fans of the Winnipeg Blue Bombers, but fans across the league saying, oh, why are you, you taking out a star player in the biggest moment of the game, yada, yada, yada. There's none of that this week because I think everyone can agree that the health and safety of Zach Caleros has to come first, even in that crucial situation, and especially in a crucial situation early in the season, right? Teams are going to want to keep, uh, keep their star players on the field. Star players are, want, are going to want to play through injury. When it comes to the head and neck, there should be no risk there, no, no extra risk taken, because the potential for something even more devastating on the next play is so huge. So I want to give full kudos to the CFL for making the right call here, for stepping up, for having the conviction to pull Caleros from the game. And I think fans across the league should applaud them for that because it makes it better for all of us. Whether you're playing professional football like Zach Caleros and you're having yourself protected in that situation or you're someone who's going to put your, your little kid in tight football and have them go through the system. If we create a culture where we're pulling guys who take shots to the head, no matter what the circumstances or how influential that player may be, it's better for all of us and it's safer for all of us. As an athlete, you're always going to want to go back in the game. And that's what Calero said. He felt like he could have played, but you have to sometimes protect athletes from themselves because they're going to want to fight through it. And JC, it's a great point you make about the younger kids coming up. It really shouldn't matter the situation, how old somebody is, whether it's pro, amateur, they're playing with the red and white on for Canada or what have you. You got to make sure that they're pulled out. And I can only speak from experience. I've had my bell rung a bunch of times when I came through the system and the bell rings just got harder and harder in high school and then at university in Guelph. And as a player, you're there and you want to play, man. You want to win. You want to go out there and do all you can for your team, but we didn't have concussion spotters back then. There wasn't as much talk. I can't believe I'm even saying back then. I just aged myself so much, but like <laughs> back from 05 to 09 at the U of G, we didn't have that type of safety around the game. And I think it's great because it will help football last for longer, more specifically tackle football, the game that we all love and we want to watch. And hopefully the CFL 
prospers from that. So it was the right call to take Caleros out, whether he likes it or not. And in the heat of the moment, I bet you he dropped a bunch of cuss words and was not happy. But at that point, the CFL did make the right decision. A lot of times, you know, we bang on the league and the commissioner and Randy Ambrosi and what's wrong with it. But in my mind, in terms of player safety, at least in this one aspect, they've been transparent. They take Caleros out of the game. They admitted for better or for worse that they made a mistake with Fajardo and potentially want to swing the other way where they err on the side of caution. So at least the league in this instance, these two examples have made the right call or been transparent. And I think what maximizes this or what what really puts the spotlight on this too, they took out the reigning MOP in the dying minutes of a close football game, right? If you take out, you know, a rookie in the second quarter of, of a random game, you know, to me, that's not as meaningful as taking out Zach Kolaris at home in Winnipeg with the game on the line. So to me, that speaks volumes about how seriously they are taking this. So I, I agree with you, boys. Full kudos to the league. Uh, and and again, full kudos to Drew Brown. Man, he played well. Two teams that missed the postseason a year ago had strong performances in week one. We've already talked about the BC Lions crushing Edmonton in front of the biggest crowd Vancouver has seen in years but to me, the other team I saw this week in person, the Ottawa Red Blacks, actually outplayed Winnipeg, deserved to win that game, just came on the wrong side of a very tight score. I'm curious to go around. Which two, which of those two teams did you boys find more impressive in week one? We've already talked about the BC Lions' dominance, and I don't think you could have played a better football game than they played. Rightfully, they should be the most impressive. But then we talk about Edmonton and how weak that defensive roster was, especially I have a hard time giving them full value for that week one performance based on who they were playing. Now, when you come up against the back to back defending Grey Cup champions as a roster that's been completely revitalized in the Ottawa Red Blacks and you're able to outplay them and they should have won that football game. Now that to me is the more impressive performance than blowing out uh, uh, a young team that didn't have a ton of experience. Ottawa really impressed me. I think the mistakes that they made in week one are the types of mistakes you make when you're a team that hasn't played together before. And those will be quickly fixed as we get into the later part of the season. This is a team that can be extremely competitive. Jeremiah Mazzoli is electric at the quarterback position. He played extremely well. Jalen Acklin's not going to drop very many touchdown balls down the line. And hopefully Paul Lapalise can clean up some of that uh, late in the half clock management. You fix a few of those things. I think this is a win over the Winnipeg Blue Bombers by more than a touchdown. Uh, had they maximized their potential. And that would have been an extremely impressive start to the season. This might surprise some people as much as I love me, Canadian quarterbacks and Nathan Rourke, the more impressive team was Ottawa going into Winnipeg when they were unveiling the latest great cup banner that they've won there by the blue bombers as decided underdogs. Like that line opened at nine and a half, you know, 10 points. And a lot of people expected the Red Blacks to get blown out, but they controlled that game for the good majority of it. And there's a lot of people walking around the Red Blacks facilities thinking that they should have won that game. And you mentioned a couple of the reasons why they did not. And honestly, you know, what stood out to me from broadcast standpoint was what 
whatever the hell happened with the clock situation going into halftime wasn't even talked about at all on TSN. The panel completely went in opposite directions, and I get it, but we're talking about a situation that arguably could have cost Ottawa the game overall. Yes, there's other plays, and Akron dropped a touchdown, but that situation in and of itself could have cost them it. And the fact that LaPolice didn't own it, to me, quite honestly, is a lack of leadership. And he needs to change that very quickly. You're the head coach. The buck stops with you. You need to show your players that you will own up in that situation no matter what happened. I don't care whose fault it is. You're the head coach in that situation. You have the ultimate say in what goes down. You need to own up to it. Now, over and above that, Jeremiah Masoli looked absolutely incredible for the situation that he was put in. Brand new offense. Other than Jalen Acklin, he's never thrown a football in a regular season game to any of those players. Looked like he had a midseason connection with all of those guys. And oh, by the way, to go on the road to do it at IG Field against what was in 2021 the best defense in the league and one of the most historic in Blue Bombers history was really impressive. I'm curious, though, now if Hamilton is wondering, eh, Maybe we should have paid up to keep Jeremiah Masoli <laughs> instead of Dane Evans. <laughs> I got to say, I was expecting both of you guys to talk about the BC Lions. I thought I had a hot take picking Ottawa, but I'm going to I'm gonna talk about Ottawa for a little bit too. Here's the thing I found most impressive. You guys, yes, absolutely. Jeremiah Masoli, impressive game. Jalen Acklin, strong game despite the drop. To me, what really impressed me was the way in which Ottawa's front seven was not pushed around by Winnipeg's offensive line. The Winnipeg Blue Bombers, have had the best offensive line in the CFL for a number of years. It's been the heartbeat of their team, their bread and butter, right? They control the line of scrimmage, make life easy for their running backs. Well, Brady Oliveira went nowhere right on Friday night. Johnny Augustine went nowhere. The club had absolutely no ability to run the football. Now, they didn't give up any sacks. Zach Kolaris was getting rid of the ball very effectively. But if Ottawa's front seven is really that good, because I've talked to a few people about this game who have watched the film, they don't feel like Winnipeg's offensive line has gotten worse. So if Ottawa's front seven is that good, that it can stand that stout against Winnipeg's dominant offensive line, then that to me is an incredible sign for Ottawa's defense. And I think spells bad news for their opponents this season because the defense, we you know, I expected the offense to be better with Jeremiah Masoli at the helm, all that. Ottawa kept most of its defense from last year intact. And guess what? All of a sudden, they're not on the field for 35, 40 minutes a game. And they're they're playing like they look like a really solid defense. So I'm excited to see what they can do this season, particularly with that front seven. Because again, Winnipeg has been the best rushing team in the CFL for years. Ottawa didn't give up anything, anything. There's still far too many people around the league in my mind that are not giving Ottawa enough credit for how good they're going to be this year. This is not your Red Blacks team of years past. It's completely rebuilt. There's, what, 13 new starters in there for their week one game. That's an insane number. Uh, you have to look at them with completely fresh eyes, and they showed us why against Winnipeg. You know, Don outside of the teams that got blown out, just one sec, JC, obviously the Hamilton Tiger Cats were not impressive. Obviously the Elks were not. I would put the Bombers on the list of the least impressive teams in week one. There was a lack of explosiveness on offense. And Hodge, this is why I wanted to jump in here, because you touched on it. It's a different run game when you don't have Andrew Harris there. And I know that he was injured, 
for part of last season, essentially half of it, I think it was for the regular season. But Brady Olivier and Johnny Augustine don't have the physicality to their game. So I think that's part of why that Bombers offense was held back. And without Kenny Lawler, I think this is really underrated. hasn't been talked about anywhere that I've seen. He's a guy that can beat you in multiple ways. He can line up at wide out, line up at slot, get deep on you, get vertical, go up and get the football in a 50-50 ball situation and run all the routes underneath. He is a complete receiver. Yes, Greg Ellington is really good, but he's not a guy that's going to fly by you down the sideline on a go route. So I think Winnipeg needs to find some playmakers in that receiver core. Otherwise, teams are going to stack up against that offensive line, as you alluded to, Hodge, and say, yeah, we're going to stuff your running game. Let's see who's going to run by us in the secondary. I think that's a valid point. You look at the guys they brought in, the two slotbacks and Greg Ellenson and then the rookie Dalton Schoen. Both of those guys are more possession guys. Nobody really threatens you deep on that Winnipeg offense. And if they can't be as physical in the run game, now I think the offensive line can have a better performance and they'll open up some holes. We'll still see some 100-yard-plus games from Elvera and Johnny Augustine. But if they can't, marry that with a deep threat offense. And I'm, I don't think Rashid Bailey is necessarily a game-breaking deep threat. Uh, that's going to be a problem for the Winnipeg Blue Bombers. Dunk, you reported that the CFL's uh, television ratings for the first week of the season were down 15% from last year's numbers. Is there a cause for concern there? I don't necessarily think there is as much as people look at those numbers because we need to provide some context here, right? TSN does offer a streaming service, TSN Direct. I think it's about $20 a month, so you can watch the CFL games that way. And we've obviously seen over the years more and more people cutting the cord or there's a new term that I just heard the other day, cord never. Some people have never had cable. They've never had to cut the cable because they never had it. So I think there's something to be said for that. But When you look at the numbers, what was startling to me is just based off week one this season compared to last season. And yes, it was a shortened schedule and there was a season that was missed. A lot of people were hyped up, but it was about off by 100,000. So I don't necessarily think there would have been that big of a change in terms of the cord cutters. I think it probably more has to do with the start of summer. You know, I saw some of it on my Twitter timeline. People were talking about, well, they just couldn't get into football in June. and you know, that does make some sense. But in years past, you go back to 2019, the numbers were similar to what they were in 2021 when they kicked off the season. It was over 500,000 years on average for the game. So this one checked in just under, I think it was 450,000 for the week. So not super concerning, but, you know, a team like the Saskatchewan Rough Riders, yes, they're going to register the highest TV rating largely week in and week out. They were over 550,000, but I think it was last year, game one that they played was over 700,000. So certainly a little bit of a dip, but without the streaming numbers to put together, it's hard to kind of compare it year over year. I think with that context, we can still get an idea because it does seem like, and again, the decent amount of the fans on my Twitter timeline were saying, no, the streaming quality is just not that good, that they go back to TV. So I don't think it's cause for concern. I just think, it's a baseline now. We have week one, so we'll compare it to this season. You know, as much as we want to look back at other years and compare that, I just don't think you can do that in this day and age. Yeah, I'll, I'll say this. I, I'm i not a big fan of TSN Direct. I don't find the streaming quality to be good enough. I'm hopeful that that gets corrected because I am not a cable person myself. I stream everything 
but I want TSN Direct to be better. I hear a lot of complaints about the status of that app, the the, the quality of the streaming, and the fact that you can't rewind even even two minutes. Right, two minutes is not a lot to ask for to to be able to go back and watch a big play. So I would like the streaming quality to get better. But I'd also love to know how many people are streaming these games and how has that number changed over the last five to 10 years since the streaming became a viable option for sports fans. I also don't use the TSN direct because I've had too many problems with it in the past. I know there are some people who like it, but TSN really has to catch up in that regard. If they're going to be competitive in a number of areas, you just saw that they lost the rights to MLS soccer to Apple TV on a completely streaming-based deal, the CFL should be looking hard at that deal and seeing if there are (laughs) streaming options for them down the line. Now, in terms of the numbers this week, I do think there's one more thing we got to point out. It's it's not just that there was less hype because there wasn't a missed season last year, which caused a little bit of spike in the numbers for week one a year ago. It's also that people were back in the stadiums. I mean, there was 34,000 people in BC Place. That's 34,000 people that would have been watching on TV uh, a year ago, right? We we haven't seen that number of people, at, particularly in that stadium, for eight years. So there's a lot more people in the seats, at least in one market, and that has an effect on how many people are watching on TV as well. It's great to see the bums in seats, but you guys talking about the streaming and competitiveness if you're TSN and you want to show the CFL, you can put the product out there in different ways. You got to beef up the streaming service, plain and simple. People have talked about it on Twitter, social media, that it needs to be better. And it's like, you know, Apple's lurking, right? It's like the meme that full credit <laughs> to my guy drafted up here. TSN is holding hands with the CFL, but they see that Apple deal and like, yo, what is going on over there? And you know, that Apple is going to beef up the quality of streaming if they're going to do it for Major League Soccer and potentially other broadcast rights with live content because that is something that is as valuable, maybe even more so than gold these days, to be honest. Well said, boys. Well said. It's now time for Hodges Heritage Moment. We're going a day early on this one. This is actually June 16th. But on this day in 2018, a young man entered the field of play at BC Play Stadium wearing nothing but a Jonathan Jennings jersey and a pair of blue underwear. While security was unsuccessful in corralling the man, BC Lions defensive back Marcel Young took matters into his own hands by leveling the streaker, which drew a loud response from the crowd. Video of the incident went viral, garnering millions of views on television and social media. The fan later hired a law firm that claimed in a statement that he'd suffered serious injuries, including a mild traumatic brain injury. Nothing appears to have come from the fan's legal action likely due to the fact that he was considered a trespasser after entering the field of play, a violation for which he was fined $115. Boys, I can't believe it's been four years since we saw the blue underpants streaker get leveled by Marcel Young at Vancouver. Unbelievable. And it was like a terrible quality video, I feel like, that went viral. Plus, all the signs you see when you're a kid say, trespass, what is it, at your own risk? So if you're going to run on the field with a bunch of dudes who are weaponized to take people down to the ground, come on, bro. You can't be hiring a lawyer after that. You're asking for it. <laughs> yeah, also, if you don't want, don't want I, to get hit by a truck. Don't stand in the highway. Well, I, <laughs> yeah. I, I feel like this was not preordained by this individual because let's be honest, had it been, 
he would have worn better underwear. Let like like <laughs> well, at least that, match the team color, right? Yeah, exactly, exactly. <laughs> you're not you're not pulling out the blue tidy whiteies pre-planning this. This is a spur of the moment thing that speculation likely had something to do with a couple of drinks that he had early on in the night. It's now you know, I don't want to the- go off on too much of a tangent here, but <laughs> just stay away from the tidy buddies, all right? Keep it boxers <laughs> nice and free and flowing, okay? <laughs> I don't want the- any more freeness happening there once he gets hit by Marcel Young. I don't want bits flying out. Keep it tight. I like the tidy whiteys in that situation. <laughs> we have gotten so far off the rails. Boxer briefs, buddy. There, you can keep them tight with boxer briefs. <laughs> it's now time. And by the way, if you are this fan, We'd love to have you on the Three Down Nation podcast if you're listening. <laughs> I'd love to hear your explanation. Why the blue tidy weddies? Why the decision? Why everything? I would love to know. Three-minute well, drill. Here we go. It seems likely that Jackson Jeffcoat is coming back this week after missing week one with an ankle injury. Is that good news for the Bombers? It absolutely is. They've got those two bookend pass rushers and Willie Jefferson and Jackson Jeffcoat. When those two guys are firing on all cylinders, there's nobody that can beat them. The Montreal Alouettes traded for running back Walter Fletcher after putting William Stanback on the six-game injured list. Can he help them win games? He can, man, but let Jesh run and tweet run, okay? Look what he did after Stanback went out of the game. Is he going to be Willie Stanback 2.0? No, but let Antweet carry the load. Doug Flutie ribbed Milt Stiegel on the TSN panel for putting four Blue Bombers in the top five of his top 50 players ballot. Is that fair? I would pay good money to watch Doug Flutie and Milt Stiegel talk ball and rib each other all day long. This was outstanding Twitter entertainment. Montreal Alouette's owner, Gary Stern, told DJ Ormagist that his team will kill the Argos on Thursday. Do you think he'll be proven right? I don't know. It's going to be a tough task, but I want to know what Kahari Jones felt about those comments (laughs) in the locker room after his owner hung him out to dry in week two. The BC Lions signed Keon Hatcher to a contract extension through 2023. Is it a big deal to get that receiver under contract? Not a huge deal, but looks like he has a rapport with my man, Canadian quarterback Nathan Rourke. So, smart move. Dwayne The Rock Johnson said MLSE chairman Larry Tannenbaum saw the failed CFL-XFL potential partnership as a, quote, amazing opportunity, close quote. What do you think of that? I'm not surprised to hear it. There have long since been rumors about TS, or pardon me, about Toronto and wanting to partner with the XFL. I was glad somebody finally came out and said it, even if it was The Rock and not Larry Tannenbaum himself. The Red Blacks move starting safety Justin Howell to the six-game injured list. Who should replace him in the nation's capital? Eventually, it should be Alonzo Adai, but for the immediate future, I think you stick Antoine Pruneau back there. He got some playing time due to injury in the game. I thought he looked like a younger version of himself playing halfback in that contest. Tickets for the 109th Grey Cup in Regina went on sale to the general public on Monday and are already 90% sold. Think the game will be a sellout? Yeah, it'll be sold out, man. Either way, it's a football hotbed. There'll be a packed house there November. Just hope it's not too, too cold. I know how you're saying I'm soft under my breath. That's fine. Regina <laughs> Native and Three Down Nation contributor Amanda Ruler is now with the Seattle Seahawks after completing a stint with the Saskatchewan Rough Riders. But, boy, 
We're not surprised to see this rise, are we? Not at all. Amanda Ruller is a star in the making, and I'm so unbelievably proud to see a Canadian woman coaching in the NFL. Amazing stuff. The Ticats and franchise quarterback Dane Evans launched a new initiative called Play It Forward in support of Indigenous youth. How cool is that? That's extremely cool, and I'm glad to see an Indigenous player like Dane Evans giving back to communities in Canada. Just fantastic all around. The Elks released left tackle Antonio Garcia two days after getting smashed by BC. Is that a surprise? (laughs) It's not, and we're going to see this with Chris Jones. It's going to be a revolving door. I think Rod Pearson told me on Wednesday that there was over 100 players in and out in Saskatchewan in his first year, so this roster is going to keep turning. Toronto moved receiver Eric Rogers to the six-game injured list on Wednesday. Yikes. Is that a big loss? I think it is. To me, he is their best receiver. At least he certainly was in 2021. They also six-game Juwan Breskison, the big-body Canadian slotback. I think that's a loss for them as well. We thank you, as always, for listening to the Three Down Nation podcast. We'll see you guys next Wednesday for another episode. Enjoy week two of the CFL. Get ahead of postage rate increases this year with Stamps.com. It's like your own personal post office. Sign up with promo code PROGRAM for a four-week trial plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com code PROGRAM.